title, as you can see on the screen, is Here Come the Boom, because as I have sought to impress upon you, as God has impressed upon me, these minor prophets, some of the perhaps most neglected, maybe overlooked, at least maybe misunderstood or, 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 or just not understood, books in our Bibles are actually short little books but they have major lessons for us, lessons of major implication about God and His Word and the gospel and what it means to live for Him in a fallen world. And this morning, we are turning our attention to the minor prophetic Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We have been through Joel, Obadiah, and Nahum. We're looking at six of the 12. This morning, we're starting the fourth one, the minor prophetic book of Habakkuk. And in a few minutes, I'm going to begin reading from it. We're going to try to cover today the first two chapters. We'll finish the book uh, the next time we are together here on a Sunday morning. But this morning it's chapters one and two in the book of Habakkuk. And before I read, before I even introduce you to Habakkuk and the, the nature of his story, let me begin by sharing with you that it was several years ago, actually not all that long ago, just a few years ago, there was a fisherman, true story on the New Jersey coastline, and he was fishing one day there on the coast when out on the water, just a little bit beyond where he was, he spotted a large plastic bag floating on the sea. Somehow managed to get a hold of it to snag it and pull it in, and when he did, and he opened this large plastic bag that was floating in the ocean up, he found in it almost 300 mostly unopened letters that were prayer requests that had been mailed to a local pastor. Upon further investigation, he discovered that this pastor had died some two years ago. And, and, and apparently, as best as they were able to put the pieces together, when that happened, and then they cleaned out his office, his home, whatever it was, that somehow these nearly 300 mostly unread, unopened prayer requests had been thrown away, somehow ended up in the ocean, and then in the hands of this fisherman. And eventually it was decided that, I guess somebody decided, it's okay if they go ahead and open it up now and read them. It's been two years after all, and somebody wanted prayer. So they began to open the letters and read the requests that had been sent to this pastor. And while some of those requests were certainly frivolous, there were prayer requests to win the lottery, things of that nature, there were also, as you would imagine, many more serious requests and needs represented there as well. There were prayer concerns for drug addiction, for wayward children, for broken marriages, for financial need. And I suppose if there was a common thread that you could say ran through most, if not all, of those letters, the common thread, the common theme was that these were people who were waiting. People who were waiting. People who in one way or another, though their needs were different, were asking the question, when? When are you going to do something, Lord? How long, as the Bible often says, O oh Lord, are you going to make me wait until you clean up the mess that is my world? These are people waiting on their world, such as it was as they knew it, to change. And I believe that's a fair introduction to the book of Habakkuk. Because like Joel and Obadiah and Nahum before him, as we have looked at them over the last several Sundays, the theme, the general, sort of the main theme of the letter, the book of Habakkuk, of his prophecy, is once again justice. The justice of God and the need for it in the world. 
The, the desire that people have, that believers have, for God to take the world's wrongs and somehow make them right. But while the other, here's the distinction. While the previous three minor prophets we looked at mostly, primarily asked the question, why? Why, Lord, is the world this way? Why, Lord, do the wicked prosper? Why does it seem like the bad guys always win and get away with it? Habakkuk's fundamental question, once again, is when? When, O Lord, will you do justice? How long, O Lord, until you're going to move? And so that's where we're headed today in the book of Habakkuk. And I really believe that if we're going to understand both the nature of what he is saying and asking here correctly, and we're going to understand how to apply it to our lives, because if we can't do that, then really, what's the point? We need to understand what he says and why it matters. I believe that one of the ways we can do that is simply by following, by directing our attention to four things in the book of Habakkuk in its first two chapters this morning. So that's what I've got for you, four things. There are really four actions I'm going to invite you to take. Now, you're going to have to get up and move around, but you are going to have to take them to heart if it's going to make sense and make a difference. So I've got four actions that we can take from Habakkuk's prophecy. The first one is this. I want to invite you, and to make it easy, they all begin with the letter L. The first one I want you to do is look. Everybody say look. I want you to look at Habakkuk's history with me, just as we've done with the previous minor prophets. Here's what you need to know in a nutshell about Habakkuk and his book. You need to know that this was a prophecy once again, and it was recorded, we're going to call it at 605 B.C., right around the year 605 B.C. That would make Habakkuk a contemporary of the other minor prophet Nahum, as well as the major prophet Jeremiah. These guys are on the scene, they're in the mix at that time as well. And specifically, what makes the year 605 significant, and if you've been here the past couple of weeks, this will make sense. If not, play along and smile like you do understand. It will eventually. But what you need to know about the year 605 is this. The Assyrian Empire is falling. The Babylonian Empire is rising. And the kingdom of Israel, the people of God, are flailing. One is falling, another is rising, God's people are flailing. They are flaying, flailing morally, politically, socially, most of all spiritually. They've given themselves over to idols all over again. Things are a mess in the land of Israel. And that's when God began to stir the soul of this man named Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk, like the other minor prophets we've looked at so far, we don't know anything about him. We don't know his heritage, his history. We don't know where he was born, what he did for a living. We don't know anything about him except what's revealed in this book, which isn't much. Now, interestingly, this is free. Jewish tradition says, and I don't know if that means it's true or not, but a lot of people believe it. Jewish tradition says that Habakkuk is actually the little boy that the prophet Elisha raised from the dead. Maybe you've heard that story, Elisha and the Shunammite woman. He, he stays with this woman, her son dies, he raises him from the dead. Jewish tradition says Habakkuk was that little boy. I don't know if that's true. That may not be here or there. I thought it was interesting, so you can write it down and take it home and impress your friends. But... What is interesting, what is significant, what does make the prophet Habakkuk unique is that while most prophets, our definition of a prophet is a person who speaks to people for God. A prophet is someone who speaks to the people on God's behalf in a distinct way. Habakkuk is different in the sense, and you'll see this from verse 1. He's a man who spoke to God about the people. 
Most prophets speak to the people for God. Habakkuk goes to God on behalf of or in the place of the people. And again, his message is a cry for justice. But his message, his cry for justice, has a twist. That takes us to the second thing I want you to see. We look at Habakkuk's history. We understand a little bit about what's going on. Then we need to, understanding that, what I've given you so far, the second thing I want to invite you to do is listen with me. Listen. Everybody say listen. Listen to Habakkuk's lament. Because that's exactly what it is. It's a lament. What I want to do for the next few minutes, we did this last Sunday. I just want to read chapter 1 for you. Kind of comment along the way. Try to give you a flavor of what's going on. So if you bear with me for the next several minutes, open your Bible. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to walk us through these 17 verses and see if we can understand what's happening. Habakkuk 1 verse 1, this is what the scripture says. It says, the oracle, an oracle is a vision. The vision which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now he begins to speak. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous, and justice, therefore, comes out perverted. Now, that's a bleak picture. That's a bleak picture for any nation. Actually, it sounds like a fair representation of perhaps maybe in some ways our nation. It sounds like many nations. But it's nothing new for the minor prophets. Until you realize, and this is the key, this is the twist I mentioned a moment ago. Until you realize what Habakkuk's doing here is he's not praying about some foreign oppressor. All the other prophets have done that so far. Lord, make Assyria go away. Make Babylon go away. Deal with those nasty, rotten, filthy Edomites. That's not what's happening here. What I want you to understand about the first four verses is this is a man, Habakkuk, praying for his own nation. This is a man praying, an Israelite, a Hebrew, praying for his fellow Israelites. And he is saying, Lord, how long till you deal with us? How long till you take the sin away? Now, I would guess in praying that prayer, he has an idea of what he wants God to do. He wants God to wipe out the baddies and raise up the goodies and and make make it all happy and healthy and joyful again. But that's what he's praying. He's praying for his nation. Deal with us. Make the sin go away. And in verses 5 through 11, God answers with a twist of his own. Follow along, 5 through 11. This is now God speaking to Habakkuk. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing, I am doing something in your days, but you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, that fierce, impetuous people who march throughout the earth. They seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. They come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings. Rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up rubble to capture it. And they are going to sweep through. This is now what he's going to say they're going to do to Israel. They they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. They will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. In other words, here's God's response in verses 5 through 11 to Habakkuk. Chill! I'm on it! 
You want justice. You want me to move. Habakkuk, I've got it all under control. I'm already at work, but brace yourself. I'm going to do what you want me to do. But I want you to brace yourself as well, because the shocking twist that God revealed to him here, and it may not be clear to us at first reading, but I assure you it's very much the message. God said that in order to deal, here's what God revealed. He said, in order to deal with the sin of Israel, in order to make my people holy once again, the wickedness of Israel, I am going to, God said, send in the even wickeder Babylonians. I'm going to send in the even wickeder Babylonians. They are going to conquer the land. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to take the people captive. To which, next, in verses 12 through 17, quoting straight from Hebrew into English, Habakkuk said, say what? (laughs) You're going to do what? Well, let's look at what he says, beginning in verse 12. Now it's Habakkuk speaking again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. You, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. God, I know what you're like. You can't look on wickedness with favor. Why why do you look with favor on those, Babylon, who deal treacherously? Why Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you, now he uses a fishing analogy, why have you made men, he's talking about Israel, like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they bring all of them up with a hook, they're going to drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net, and they're going to rejoice and be glad. They're going to offer sacrifice to their net, burn incense to their fishing net, because though these, through these things their catch is large, their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Here's what I want you to see. Habakkuk's lament is now gone from one-fold to two-fold. His initial lament is, how long, O Lord? When are you going to do something about all this wickedness? When are you going to do something to deal with all this sin? Now he's asking this question, how could you, Lord? How could you, Lord? How can you, here's the question, a holy God use people like that to deal with us? As we move into chapter 2, God's response is, well, Habakkuk, it's going to take some time. You're going to have to wait to see how it all plays out. But I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. And as you wait and watch that plan play out, as you wait to see what it is that I'm going to do, there's a call, there's an implicit call in chapter 2, and this is the third thing I want to show you in the story this morning. There is a call that God gives Habakkuk that I believe by extension is offered to us, and that is an extension, uh, that is an invitation to lean. Everybody say lean. We look, he said we listen, and now we lean. We are called to lean on the assurance that God gave to the prophet Habakkuk. But here's what I want to do. Rather than just dive right into chapter 2, read all 20 verses from start to finish, what I want to do, and I hope this is okay, and if, if not, I'm going to do it anyway, but, but what I want to do with, with Habakkuk chapter 2 is simply summarize the message of it for you as succinctly as I can, and then draw out what I think are the key points for us to take hold of today. Summarize what it says and draw a few things out. 
Because as Habakkuk lays this lament before the Lord, not just when, but, and, and how long, but, but how could you? I don't understand your methods. I don't understand why you'd work in this way. God then replies in chapter 2 to that perplexity, to that confusion, in a message that, that basically boils down to this. God says, Habakkuk, understand, I know all about Babylon's sin. I know how bad they are, and I know they're even worse than Israel. I, I know things are a mess here. There's wickedness. I know that they're worse than you are. But even so, Habakkuk, here's what you've got to know. They are, at this point in time, my chosen instrument of discipline. For whatever reason, in the wisdom and the knowledge of God, God has decided, he's telling Habakkuk, he said, I've decided that this is the instrument that's going to apply sufficient pressure on my people that's going to bring the pressure that is needed because there is apparently no other way to bring them to a place of surrender before me, to cause them to bow, to cause them to yield, to cause them to repent. But be assured, Habakkuk, a time will come when I deal with them too. That's the message of chapter 2. This is the way it needs to be, and I'll deal with them. In fact, very quickly, let me just point out that throughout chapter 2, God points out all the guilt that he knows Babylon's already guilty of. In fact, if you were to read it word for word, I encourage you to do it on your own, you'd find there were five woes. Woes are words of judgment pronounced on Babylon. In verses 6 through 8, he, he, he calls them out for their insatiable greed. Verses 9 and 10, for their relentless ambition. Verse 12, for being people of tyrannical violence. Verse 15, that they mercilessly humiliate their enemies. They have no regard for human dignity or life. Verse 19, he pronounces woe on them for their blatant, horrible idolatry. And in each of those statements, again, if you look at chapter 2 as a whole, you find God assuring Habakkuk, again, Babylon's going to get what they deserve. They're going to be disciplined and punished for their sin. Once again, as we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, listen, nobody gets away with it forever. Nobody gets to do whatever they want to do to whoever they want to do it without consequence. God sees, God knows, God will deal. But God is assuring Habakkuk of something more here. And it's something that I believe we can lean on to. Which is that a day was going to come for Israel in the near term and by, again, by extension, for all of us who know Jesus Christ in the ultimate big picture, when something's going to happen, evil is going to be so decisively dealt with, sin is going to be so finally and totally put down that, and I want you to look at verse 14. Look at Habakkuk 2, verse 14. Here's God's promise. In the midst of it all, when it's all said and done, a day is coming, the promise will be kept, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. As waters cover the sea, he says, listen, Habakkuk, I'm working out a plan. Listen, Habakkuk, I've got a destination in mind. That plan, that destination is a day when evil will be gone forever. Sin will no longer be a problem. Waiting will no longer be an issue. Pain will no longer be a reality. Tears will no longer flow unless they're tears of joy. I'm working on it. I've got a plan. There's no question in my mind. That day is coming and when we doubt it, because I know you doubt it, I doubt it, I question it, well, he says there's something you can do, and that's found in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2 in your Bible. He says, I want you to remember this, Habakkuk. The vision, the promise, is yet for an appointed time. There's an appointed day when this is all going to happen. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. 
Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Though it seems like a long time, wait. And let me tell you something. That's where the real question is or the real problem challenge is, isn't it? Isn't that where the real challenge is as a believer in Jesus Christ living life on this planet? Because in one way or another, here's what I know about most, maybe even all of us here this morning. I know that in one way or another, in ways great or small, in ways momentary or magnified over a long, long period of time, you've got stuff going on in your life that demands and cries for justice. There's something that isn't worked out yet. There's something that hasn't been resolved. Maybe it's personal. Maybe you're looking at something bigger, something corporate, something collective, something national. I don't know what it is, but you're looking at stuff, and it burdens your heart, and you say, there's a need here for God to do something. When are you going to move, Lord? What are you going to do? How long till this problem gets solved? And if I gave you 60 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe 10 seconds, you know exactly what that thing is. That problem, that relationship, that wound, that scar. How long, O oh Lord, till you do justice? We have serious wrongs that need to be made right. And here's what I'm saying. I think most of us who know Jesus Christ are kind of, sort of, usually able to cling to the belief that in the end it's all going to work out, right? We know in the end it's all going to work out. What a glorious day that will be. Jesus comes back and all is well. But what we struggle with more deeply is Habakkuk's question, when? When's my world going to change? When's my wound going to get fixed? When's my question going to get answered? When's my problem going to get solved? When, Lord? How long are you going to make me look at injustice? And that leads us to the final way we can grapple with, respond to, work through Habakkuk's story. And this is the place where if all the rest of this is like confusing and uncertain and unclear to you, this is the point where I believe ancient Bible history becomes poignant, pressing, contemporary reality. This is where we get to the so what. Because the fourth thing, the fourth invitation the fourth action I'd invite you to take as we look at Habakkuk's story is this. We've looked, we've listened, we've given an assurance we can lean on. God's working it all out. What do we do in the meantime? Fourth and finally, we live. Everybody say live. We live by Habakkuk's counsel. While we wait for God to move, to heal, to fix, to change, to help, he's given us counsel to live by. Because when you're waiting on the world to change, a terrible song, by the way, if you know what I'm talking about. It's a terrible song. But the waiting is the hardest part. That's an excellent song, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but those of you who do, uh, we'll talk later. Waiting is the hardest part. Waiting is awful sometimes when we're in need. So the question is really, what's a follower of Jesus Christ supposed to do? Because here's where maybe you are this morning. I don't know, maybe. I'm going to guess. You've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Your heart belongs to him. Your sins are forgiven. In that sense, you know all is well. 
And again, you have this belief, this conviction, because you've been taught it, and you've gone back to it, and you've remembered it, and you've clung to it, that in the end, it all works out. Jesus will take me home. And, and what a day that'll be, and it'll all be well. But in the meantime, what we've got to figure out is how to wait. How do we wait on God to move? How do we wait for God's justice to be done? Well, thankfully, here, buried in, as so to speak, chapter 2, Habakkuk offers us three words of counsel. And I literally mean three words. Three single words of counsel that I believe we can all take to heart, whatever our situation is, that cries for God's justice, whatever we're waiting on him to do. Conveniently, these all begin with W, so it'll be easy to remember. Here we go, number one. The first thing Habakkuk counsels us to do when we're waiting for God to do justice, to make a wrong right, is to watch. The first word of counsel he gives us is to watch. Let me ask you a question. Why do prisons put guards up in towers? For the same reason that football teams put coaches in the press box, right? Somebody's got to see the bigger picture. Somebody's got to get off field level where there's smoke and there's blood and there's dust and there's action and see, well, what's really going on? For their own sake and for the sake of the rest of the team, the rest of the staff, the rest of the whatever, to to see what's happening over here and what's happening over there and and how's the enemy moving around or the opponent, whatever's going on. Somebody's got to see the bigger picture and then come down and remind or speak down and inform everybody else what's really going on. It's It's about getting a better perspective. And what I want you to see is that while Habakkuk was waiting for God to work and and even to understand the strange plan God was revealing, that's exactly what he did here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 in your Bible. God answers, and he says, I'm bringing in Babylon to deal with you. Habakkuk, here's his response. I, I will stand on my guard post. I'll station myself on the rampart. I don't know if he literally did that. It's probably a metaphor, but you need to picture in your mind an ancient city with high walls. He says, I'm going to find the highest point on that wall I can get to. I'm going to find the watchtower on the city wall. And I will keep, here it is, watch to see what he, God, will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. In other words, what I'm supposed to do when I get God's word. And I want to tell you, listen, that is something God always honors. When we say, I'm going to seek God's perspective on this matter. God always, just as he did here, look at verse 2. He said, I'm going to get to this place where I can see God's perspective. Guess what happens? Verse 2, then the Lord answered me. And he said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. In other words, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you something. It's so true. It's so sure. It's so sealed. As soon as I say it, you'll be able to run to the people and tell them this is exactly the way it's going down. Don't ever doubt God. Here's the message, he says. And then after that, the insights began to flow. Let me ask you a very practical question. Let me ask us, okay? Because as soon as I wrote this down, I had to, I had to do the, this very thing in my life more than once throughout the rest of the week. How often, and this is not a show of hands question, by the way, okay? This is a search your heart question. How often can you honestly say as a believer in Jesus Christ that waiting on God drives you to your Bible? How often can you genuinely say, man, in that season of waiting, in the season of trial and struggle, you know, it may not be the first thing, but, but I know, I get there quickly. I don't run to my TV, to my computer, to my phone, to my friend. I don't retreat and bury my head under the covers. Well, not for long anyway, but... How, how many of us can say that waiting 
Seasons of waiting and stress and trial get us in to the Word of God. I'm here to tell you this morning, no surprise, it should. Because it is the Word of God, we get the bigger perspective. It's in the Scriptures, this very book, that we can see God's point of view. We don't get all our answers, but we get His perspective. We're reminded of the things that are true. And when we get into God's Word, I'm here to tell you, and many others would say amen to it, that's where the Holy Spirit changes our perspective. He doesn't do it sitting in a room by yourself just waiting on something to happen. You get into the Word of God. You say, well, I don't know where to go. Well, then call somebody and say, where should I go in the Word of God? You might have nice things to say, but this Word lasts forever. And too often, I know in my life, the last thing I do is get into the Bible. When it ought to be the first place we go. It's where we find what we need to move forward in faith. Just this Wednesday at our noon prayer hour, we prayed right in this room, right down here, through Psalm 19. Go home and read the latter half of Psalm 19. It tells you exactly what the Word of God will do for you when you open it up and read it. Psalm 19. What it can do in your heart and in your life. And, and that's Habakkuk's first word of counsel. When we're waiting on God to move, we watch by laying hold of his perspective. The deeper the trial, the more open this book should be. The longer the waiting, the more worn this book should be. Because it's where we get his perspective. It's where God speaks. Number one, he says, watch. Number two, he says, walk. When we're waiting on God for justice to move, we walk. And that's so important because, again, you know as well as I do, that one of the hardest things to do as a Christian when you're waiting is to just keep going. To just keep going. To just get in your Bible. To show up for church. To keep walking, spiritually speaking. To keep trusting and obeying when nothing ever seems to change. Well, it's not working. Why bother? I, I don't need to go to church. A bunch of hypocrites anyway. I need to read my Bible. Nothing ever happens. I need to pray. God never answers. So what do we do? We stop walking. It's easier to check out. It's easier to say, I'll come back around when things get better, when I figure life out, when God does what I want. Well, then I'll come back and give him my time and attention. Look at verse 4. I hear God's talking about Babylon, but he could be talking about me. Behold, as for the proud one, the one who thinks, I'll figure it out, I'll do it on my terms, I'll do it my way, right? His soul is not right within him or her. You think you can do it yourself? You think you can, God's going to work on your terms? He says, something's wrong with your soul. Something needs to change. Why? Because the righteous, the righteous man, woman, young person, lives by faith. By faith. That's a statement. It's first found here in the Old Testament. It's repeated three times in the New Testament, one of which is Romans 1.17, which is the verse that so gripped Martin Luther's life 500 years ago, it sparked the Protestant Reformation and gave us the Church of Jesus Christ and the gospel as we once again understand it today. The just, the righteous, live by faith. And among many other things, that should remind us that some things for the believer never change. Whether you're living in Old Testament times, New Testament times, 21st century times, doesn't matter what times you're living in. There's only one way for a believer to live, and that's to walk by faith. By faith in the Son of God. When times are good or bad, when God says go or he says wait, even when the road is unclear, we walk by faith. 
We watch by getting into the word where we get his perspective. We walk with him. We just keep getting up and doing the basics every day in faith. And then third and finally, Habakkuk says, his book says that we worship. We worship. Because at the conclusion of this long prophetic message, the last word of chapter 2 is this, and I promise we're almost done, but this is so important, so don't check out yet. He says, but the Lord, Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What that means, author Ken Fentress writes, is, quote, he, Jesus Christ, is reigning over the, he is reigning over the universe he created he is sovereign in all things. That God is in control even when everything and everyone seems out of control. And Fentress concludes, his presence in his temple means he has not forsaken his people. And he says his apparent silence should never be mistaken for abandonment. Can I say that again so you can write it down? His apparent silence should never be mistaken for abandonment. And so while the Lord delights in our songs of praise, he welcomes our applause and our shouts of joy. As you know, I believe that one of the sweetest sounds in our Savior's ear is the sound of his people at prayer. All that stuff. Sometimes I think Habakkuk is telling us here that the, the greatest act of worship, the greatest act of worshipful surrender that we can ever give the Lord, especially in seasons of waiting, is to sit down, to shut up, and just rest in his presence. Just rest in his presence. And I really believe that of all the words of counsel Habakkuk offers here, that may be the one that shows our trust the most. We're saying, Lord, I can't, but you can. I can't, but you will. And in faith, I will wait for your justice. Now, for Habakkuk, in his story, 70 years passed. He was probably dead by the time God worked all this stuff out. Israel was taken captive, set free, Babylon fell. 70 years had to pass before this was all said and done. But even so, the point is God did keep his word. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He just did it his time, and he did it his way. Just as he will somehow do for you. Somehow. Someday, I don't know when, you may not like how, it, how long it takes to get there, but he will. Because the big idea of this morning's message, the big idea of Habakkuk 1 and 2, is that God comes through for those who wait. God will come through for those who wait. Those who, having trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, lean hard on him for justice. Heavenly Father, justice is a word that gets thrown around in our culture all day, every day, by everybody. We hear about it all the time. And fathers, as believers, we know that because you are a holy and unchanging God, that there is a, a perfect standard of justice that, that even sometimes we don't fully grasp or understand. But we trust that you are just and we trust that you are good. 
And Father, there are times in all of our lives, and for some of us here today, it's right where we are. We are in this season of waiting. We know Jesus, and we know the end of the story, but in the middle, we just can't see when, how, if you're ever going to work it all out. Father, would you give us the grace today, whatever of this message does or doesn't make sense, whatever we did or didn't, so to speak, get out of it, would we remember the counsel of your word? That's what matters most. Father, to watch by getting into your word, not running from it when times are hard. To walk by faith even every day, each and every day, just to keep up, get up and keep doing the things that we do as believers in Jesus Christ to nurture the relationship. And Father, then to remember always to worship. Father, that whether life is good or bad or easy or hard, one thing never changes. Our God is worthy of adoration and praise. Father, help those today who wait to trust you, to see you. Father, to even love you more through the waiting because there's a nearness when we draw close to you in those seasons that sometimes we can't feel or, or know in any other way. We thank you that you're God of mercy and kindness, grace and forgiveness. We look to you in faith, praying all these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.